Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, Head of Non-Dollar Rate Strategy, and I'm joined today by just one global market specialist, Joanne Spadigam. Um, Okay, with the US out for Thanksgiving holiday, and given that we ran through our um, kind of year ahead key themes in last week's episode, uh, Joanne and I have been on the road all week for the last week, kind of marketing those views to a whole host of our um, clients that are London based. So I thought before we kind of got into this week's events and what we're looking forward to next week, etc, it would be worth just running through um, kind of the key takeaways from those meetings that, that we've had so far, and I guess mark to mark marketing to a certain extent our year ahead views and and seeing how they kind of fit with with the consensus um the biggest takeaway for me from the meetings that we've had so far is that there's a real sense of uh polarization i suppose in uh views when it comes to central banks you know there's clearly as we can see from market pricing a kind of growing majority that think that you know, this kind of table mountain restrictive for longer narrative is going to be challenged quite early or in quite a big way in 2024. But there's a still a large minority that, you know, are sit on the more hawkish side um, and think that actually current market pricing, and although it's it's very volatile at the moment, we're moving around a lot, but, but current market pricing of, you know, a, a somewhat um, easing uh, of monetary policy uh, from the Fed and the ECB and the BOE next year um, is perhaps overdone. Um, most of the concern from those that were sat on the more hawkish side of the fence, I think, um, centered on the wage setting process in Q1 uh, in both Europe, that's in Germany in particular, uh, but also in the UK. And I think that that's probably um, a, a concern that we share, or at least we understand that that's where the, the risks perhaps are to our view that central banks will be cutting, you know, at, at some point next year. Um, that that was really where there was broad consensus that the kind of wage setting process early next year could be a trigger for challenging this table mountain narrative to the upside. Even amongst those that were more dovish, um, you know, those that thought that central bankers were going to have to kind of throw the towel in on this restrictive for longer policy earlier than they were currently signaling. um, I think our most off consensus view um, was that the view that the ECB would be a the first two cuts of the kind of G3 central banks, but b also they could cut as soon as as March, which you know as you heard last week is one of our um, key calls for for the year ahead. So Joanne, perhaps this is a good time to bring you in because I think there were three main pushbacks to to that ECB view, and perhaps I'll just run through them kind of each in turn and and you can kind of give me your thoughts around each one so the first pushback um was really that the ecb wouldn't be the first to cut because they generally tend to lag the fed and so you know if we don't have the fed cutting until may for example in our central scenario um it would be very unlikely for the ecb to cut as soon as march uh what do you say to that (laughs) yes i think on on that point i don't think it's been so it's not necessarily unprecedented that that the ecb has sort of cut ahead of the fed i do think what matters more in this context really is that the u.s data continues to kind of soften and 
does continue to indicate that the Fed could indeed be cutting next year. So I think what really matters is that the trend for the US tends to continue. And markets obviously are pricing in around 30 basis points in cuts by around mid next year in the US, but also in the euro area. So I think that kind of um, general idea that the Fed will cut is probably more important than necessarily the timing of the ECB before the Fed. Um, the economic data in Europe obviously is uh, weaker in terms of the growth outlook, which is uh, which is weakened. Inflation is coming down as well. So I think uh, with the growth picture being a bit weaker in Europe, it does make sense for the ECB to go first. And, and I think it's probably not important to not overstate the lag between the ECB and the Fed. Our kind of base case is that the ECB could shift in March 24. And like you said, the kind of US call is early Q2. So I mean, the lag is around one or two months. Um, so I wouldn't overstate that lag. And really, I think that the economic data in the US will be important um, to watch more than kind of whether the ECB can go earlier than the Fed. Yeah, and I think that's the key point as well, is that it's not always the case that the ECB wait for the Fed before, before they can cut. So the second pushback that we got frequently was that the ECB wouldn't want to cut rates before they've made a decision on uh, PEP, so their pandemic emergency purchase program. Um, there's some speculation, growing speculation, that they could accelerate the rundown of PEP as part of their overall balance sheet shrink, but that they wouldn't want to cut rates uh, ahead of making a decision on whether to accelerate that or not, and I suppose the kind of operational details behind the acceleration. Um, what do you make of that? So I think a few points on uh, kind of PEP and early rate cuts. I think the first really being that across all of our G3 central banks, we do expect that QT continues even with the rate cutting cycle. I think central banks do see these two things as separate tools and that kind of rate cuts um, can actually go hand in hand with QT. And um, I think on rate cuts in, in Europe and in with QT in Europe, I think the way I'm thinking about this really is a normalization in the balance sheet, both in terms of rate cuts as well as in terms of the balance sheet unwind component. And um, we've said this many times before that if you do leave rates where they are right now, whilst inflation is coming down, that would be an implicit tightening in policy into next year. So really rate cuts are a normalization of policy. And in line with that, the balance sheet unwind component as well. So actually getting rid of PEP would also be a normalization of policy in that regard. So again, I think both this kind of rate cut story and PEP really do sit in line with the normalization of policy. Um, the operational framework is interesting, of course. I mean, I don't necessarily, again, see how that this ties in with, uh, with the rate cut scenario, because I mean, the balance sheet, um, the future of the balance sheet is a much more longer term question uh, to kind of consider whilst rate cuts at this point really is being um, prompted by the deterioration in the macroeconomic background, which is a much more imminent issue versus the balance sheet, which I think will take quite a long time to get to levels where we have to worry about the demand versus supply of reserves. Um, and then the last point to really make on PEP and rate cuts is that you could really see a scenario where the kind of rate cuts in PEP act as a bargaining tool between the hawks and the doves. Um, I do think, of course, the folks in the committee are quite keen to unwind PEP. Just today, we got comments from a ECB hawk noting that PEP should be unwound. There's no reason to keep PEP on the balance sheet. Um, so I do think really this could be a negotiation tool where the doves kind of talk about normalizing the front end, normalizing the rate side of things uh, and bringing down rates, 
whilst the hawks kind of talk about balance sheet unwind. Um, I think what's important or interesting to note as well from our meetings is that whilst we did get pushback on potentially timing, we didn't really get too much pushback on the idea that PAP could be brought forward kind of mid-24, which is our base case, or that there might actually be a gradual unwind in PAP versus kind of full roll-off um, kind of idea. So, I mean, I think those kind of two points were also interesting to note. Yeah, that, that was definitely a, a perhaps a more consensual view than, than the ECB rate cut view. Uh, and then the final pushback, which we receive frequently, and I sort of touched on it in the points that I was making about where we see the skew of risks and, and what's driving those risks, was just around the wage setting process. So lots of people thought that it would perhaps be too early for the ECB to cut because they wouldn't have kind of full visibility over how those wage negotiations had gone in Q1 um, as early as March, and therefore you know, not while it's not necessarily pushbacking, pushing back on the idea that the ECB could be the first to go and they could go early next year, perhaps the end of Q1 was still a little bit too early because of this wage, uh, you know, early year wage setting round. Um, what do you make of that? So the data on the wage setting round will only officially be out in May, I think. But I do think that earlier in the year, we will get an indication of where these wage negotiations are going. And that is what they could use to potentially cut rates um, as soon as March. I think a couple of things going into the negotiations as well. We obviously had a fairly weak economic backdrop, backdrop for Q3 and Q4. So we do really think that this wage, kind of the peak in wage inflation is past us at this point. Um, with inflation coming down and with growth kind of slowing, this bargaining power that the wage um, negotiators have is obviously a bit weaker into Q1 next year than it was into this year. So I do think the peak is kind of passed and, and the ECB will get a indication of where these wage negotiations are going by the March period um, where we expect the rate cut to come through. Okay, great. Thank you. And then just to, to finish up, I suppose, on the BOE for completeness, I don't think that there was a huge amount of pushback, although it, it's important to note that this definitely wasn't a unanimously held view um, that, you know, uh, that the BOE could be the last to hike out of the, the G3, which is our base case. Um, for longer dated rates, you know, I think I've spoken about it on this pod plenty of times, but it, to me, it felt like there was an element of complacency around how um, uh, how easily supply might be digested um, next year. You know, it didn't feel like there was all that much concern about supply indigestion. Um, I think quite a common view was that a, a turn in rates or a peak in the cycle and a turn in the data would be sufficient to bring back demand for duration globally and, and demand for, for UK assets as well. Um, and that, you know, the additional issuance from governments and, and, you know, the potential increase in QT that we're seeing from the BOE that we might be seeing from um, the ECB as well would be relatively well absorbed. I think maybe some of this pushback, particularly on the UK side, came alongside sort of growing speculation that actually the Bank of England may look to, um, you know, either slow or pause QT or at least skew the way in which they um, sell the bonds in order to limit the losses that they're locking in on QT. You know, that's an additional drag on public finances in the UK um, or that they might be looking to, to 
you know, uh, implement some kind of policy, whether that be a kind of tiered reserve policy or, or something else that limits the kind of cost of carry that they're paying on, on their portfolio of guilds. Neither of these are our base case, and perhaps that's why we sit at the slightly more uh, bearish end when it comes to, to how this kind of supply-demand imbalance might impact yields next year. But I did think it was a, an interesting point to note. Um, I, I, you know, it's even, you know, despite that, though, I think market consensus was very much still for steepness globally across the US, UK and Europe, um, although perhaps consensus differed a little bit or, or views differed a little bit in terms of timing of, of putting those steepness on and also whereabouts on the curve that it, it was better to, to hold those steepness. So I guess just talking about supply a bit more, um, let's talk about the autumn statement, Imogen. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that was the big event really in the UK this week. Um, although in the end, perhaps, you know, nearly everything that was announced had been leaked really in in the press beforehand. So um, it perhaps wasn't as exciting as as it could have been. I mean, the message around the autumn statement very quickly changed from, you know, months of of kind of pitching this uh, idea of fiscal uh, responsibility. And then uh, perhaps, you know, last week's inflation data, given that um, Rishi Sunak had, had sort of achieved um, his aim of, of halving inflation from double digits earlier in the year, um, that and that plus the undersheets that we've already seen so far in the public borrowing data this year um, left the government with a, a little bit of, of leeway um, for a little bit more fiscal expansion than they were expecting. Um, without going through the kind of measures in detail and just sticking to the market conclusions here, you know, ultimately the revisions to this year's funding needs were not that far from our base case expectations. We had revisions of 15 billion, a downward revision of 15 billion, um, and the outcome was a downward revision of, of 10 and a half billion. So not that far from expectations, but there were two elements that made this slightly more bearish for gilts than we had been expecting um, in the near term. The first is that all of that downward revision, or nearly all of that downward revision, sorry, um, came via bills rather than a reduction in gilt supply next year, as we had been expecting. Um, and, you know, that um, reduction in the overall remit came with it, came alongside a revision to the buckets because they reduced the unallocated portion. Um, and we were expecting a, a not sizable, but but a shift towards um, the shorts and mediums buckets and away from the longs and linkers. And in the end, we didn't really get that. We kind of got the reallocation or redistribution uh, of that unallocated bucket was broadly even across the curve. And so, you know, against our expectations of a slightly shorter skew, that kind of added a, a, a double whammy of, of bearish pressures, perhaps at the longer end of the curve. For me, though, for markets, you know, focusing on those very near term uh, takeaways almost misses the bigger picture. And that was that yesterday we got revisions up to public financing requirements from next year every year through the forecasting period from an already high base. Um, and so, you know, it really kind of hammered the point home that we're talking about a multi-year regime shift in the um, issuance outlook. Um, and I, I'm still worried about the market's ability to absorb all of this issuance. And, you know, for, in some ways for me, this week has cemented the case for 
um, guilt under performance next year. You know, listeners who listened to the year ahead episode last week will know that that was one of my key calls for the UK next year is that we should see guilt under performance on a cross market basis. Um, and I think yesterday's autumn statement really hammered that home. We're talking about a huge increase in supply over the next couple of years relative to the size of the market and relative to the supply numbers that, that we've seen over the last couple of years. We're talking about QT that's continuing and locking in huge losses, which adds ultimately to public funding needs. You know, in yesterday's autumn statement, the OBR revised up its cost of QT estimates back to end 2026 by 80%. Um, that's a very sizable revision. Um, and as we know, QT is happening at a faster pace and they're actively selling in bonds and locking in bigger losses than other central banks. And all of this comes against, you know, a, still a lack of demand for gilts in general, but also measures within that autumn statement that were designed to direct some of the demand that you might otherwise have from pension funds at the longer end of the curve um, into other assets, you know, kind of UK growth assets. And at the same time, I suppose, relative to a kind of previous baseline, the fact that we got slightly more fiscal expansion than we were expecting, and then the BOE had baked into its previous projections, you know, you maybe at the margin have a little bit more of demand support going forward. And that kind of also reinforces our view that the BOE will or could well be the last to cut, I keep saying hike when I mean cut, could well be the last to cut in uh, the easing cycle next year. And they will be the ones that kind of hold this uh, restrictive for longer narrative than other central banks, which too should drive some, you know, relative underperformance of guilt yields. And I think that's that's what we've seen in the last couple of days. You know, you had this bearish autumn statement and then you had the uh, very marginal but but still upside surprise on, on PMIs and, and markets are suddenly questioning this kind of dovish shift in sentiment that we've had over the last couple of weeks. And regular listeners and, and readers of our notes will know that um, I thought that that dovish shift in sentiment had gone a little bit too far and, and that a reversal was um, overdue, let's say. Um, but we've also had uh, kind of supply updates from European countries as well this week, not just about the UK. So um, to wrap this up, Joanne, do you want to just update us on, on what's going on in Europe? We interestingly had a cut in Italian issuance for the rest of the year. That's around 14 billion, the estimate, lower um, in terms of their kind of market funding. I, I think it really stems from two real things. So Firstly, there was a lot of issues with the EU over this year and uncertainty about whether they would get this funding. Uh, so that probably meant that the Italians did do some pre-funding in anticipation of the fact that they may not get EU funding. We've also had a fairly big year of retail issuance in Italy where um, the BTP Valore has had a very good take up by the retail sector. And that's also likely meant that they've had a bit more cash coming from that than they anticipated, which has led to this kind of cut in um, Italian supply. The other kind of interesting thing basically this week, though, has been that Moody's has updated their outlook for uh, Italy, moving them from a negative kind of outlook to stable. And I think that that uh, was a little bit unanticipated by most market participants, uh, given that the deficit picture for next year was also revised upwards more recently. But I think potentially that's in line with the idea that both S&P and Fitch actually have a higher rating for Italy and a stable outlook that was confirmed off late. So maybe that provision is not too uh, out, um, out there. 
I do think for BTPs, with what we've seen, a couple of positive stories from this week. But I do think that the PEP story remains quite important for Italy going forward. We've obviously had a bit more uh, of a, I suppose, quiet period where the ECB has been unwilling to talk about PEP very much. Uh, but I do think this story will gain traction once again into Q1 and will again probably lead to a bit more of a widening in BTP run spreads. The spread does seem to have been very reactive and very directional at the moment. So not really been driven over the last kind of month by anything Italian specific, even though this week, of course, we've had some positive news. So do you think that any big reversal of the rally we've seen could actually mean that BTP bond spreads widen once again? So we're a bit cautious about lowering our BTP bond target at this point, but we are, I think, a little bit uh, bearish on that at 210 bips um, at the moment. I suppose in terms of other supply kind of picture thoughts we've had for this week, we've also had lots of talk about German fiscal policy. I think it's a bit uncertain at this point what that means for 2024 bond supply. It likely means a lower bond supply for next year, if anything. But it does seem like the Germans have removed that debt rate for this year, and there's likely to be a supplementary budget coming in at some point next week. So they are leaving us hanging for now, but I do think um, in terms of 2024 supply of bonds, it does seem to be either the same kind of supply coming in as we've, as we've kind of penciled in or written downwards at this point. Um, it does seem like the Germans are unwilling to increase fiscal spending for 2024, given they haven't revised the, the debt rate for next year just, of late, just yet. Um, that's it for me, I think, uh, on the supply side. Okay, great. Let's wrap it up there then. Uh, and we'll be back next week in full force with a US contingent as well, hopefully in the form of Jan. Uh, and we will update on all of our thoughts uh, when we get there. Right. Thank you, Joanne, for joining me. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Just a reminder, if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to click the like button and hit subscribe so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week.